Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, Lots to discuss today. Let me start with um, a Hasidic story. Uh, This is from Reb Yuri of Strelesk, who is a great Hasidic master. And um, I really like this story. So so it goes like this. you know, he, he was a very, very emotional, like very fervent. I, I think, you know, he was, I've seen this appellation um, uh, given to several different um, uh, Rebbe's, but fiery angel was definitely one, one category that uh, certain Rebbe's that were, were, were called. And, and uh, Uri of Strelesk was, was one of these fiery angels. So you can imagine what it would be like to, just to pray with him, right? He was he was jumping and just very fervent and and you know that that the warmth just amazing, right? So anyway, one Shabbos, someone who wasn't a chassid, so like you know, kind of like not really his orientation, not not really from this world, you know, from that world is what I mean, from this world, more from this world than Ravori, let's say. Um, anyway, you spend Shabbos with him. And uh, after Shabbos, he goes up to the the the, the Rebbitzin, right, the, the Rebbe's wife. And the custom then was before before Shabbos, if you had any valuables or whatever it is, you sort of like left them with the Rebbitzin or with the Rebbe, whatever it is. And and you knew you didn't have to worry about that. And then after Shabbos, you'd come and you'd pick them up. So after Shabbos, he comes to 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 pick up his wallet. And the Rebbitzin asks, you know, the Rebbe's wife says, so? You know, she knows that this this was new to him, basically. She says, so what'd you think? He says, you know, it was very, very nice. It's not really my thing, but, you know, it, it was very nice. And the Rebbitzin says, well, what, what do you mean it wasn't your thing? He goes, well, you know, it's it, the Rebbe's very emotional. He was really praying, like, 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 amazingly and everything like that. But that's, you know, not, not really kind of where I'm at, what I'm used to so much. And she says, well, why? And he says, it was just a little emotional for me. And she's like, okay. And he says, well, anyway, um, I'm off and thanks again for everything. And could I have my wallet? And she says, uh, what do you mean? And he says, my wallet. I, I, I checked my wallet in with you before Shabbos started. She goes, oh, I'm not sure what you're talking about. He goes, excuse me, I left my wallet with you before Shabbos started, and I'd like it back now, please. And she goes, I really don't have any recollection of that. And she says, look, and he turns to the people around him, and he goes, you all saw me leave my wallet with her. You're my witnesses. And they go, yeah, I don't know. We... Uh, we don't remember that. <laughs> he goes, I want my wallet. <laughs> and the Rebbitzin says, wow, you're really getting emotional. <laughs> and then and then she says, you know, we all do. The only question is about what? And that, that's the story. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the story. So... 
a very strong story. Uh, and, and I'll tell you why that, that story really speaks to me a lot is, is because, you see, the idea is if you, if you want to be for real, you know, if you want to take seriously what the Torah is talking about, what it, what it means to be a soul in this world, you know, you, you have to understand that um, we exist within God. And so, so there really is no such thing as a secular moment. In other words, in other words, we're an extension of godliness. Like imagine like the sun and rays of light, right? So our soul is like a ray of light from, from God, right? We're not God, but we're an aspect of his godliness. And, and the whole world has, you know, his, his light permeate, permeating throughout it. So... So the idea is that if a person really wants to tune in and, and really wants to kind of be present, you have to realize that, that, that we give the totality of ourselves, that the totality of our experience in this world it is an ongoing conversation with God, is an ongoing act of spiritual expression. Now, the, the reason why I'm telling you all that is because I, I want to contextualize the story that, that we just shared. So, yeah, just to contextualize what it means that we, we all get emotional. It's just a question about what we're getting emotional about. And so you see that when you look in the sources, the idea is that the sort of like if a person really wants to be present, then we bring the entirety of ourselves in terms of this relationship um, with the divine. And so that means like our eating, our drinking, our sleeping, like everything that we do, all of our, all of our lives are really an interface, an ongoing interface. And especially, and here's what I'm building to, especially our emotions. And you see, I think that a lot of people can get a very kind of like superficial understanding of what it means to be in a, in a, in a relationship with God. And I think a lot of people, um, and I think this is why people, you know, it's because of this superficiality that, that, that people never get a chance to go deeper. Um, and they think that it's about a list of commandments and it's do this, don't do that, and do this, don't do that. And it's like, at a certain point, a person maxes out and they're like, give me a break, right? Like, what are you doing to me? And, and it's like, they don't get that it's not just about actions, that we're basically merging our soul with the source of our soul. And so that, that's an all-inclusive type of relationship, Right? And, and ideally a very transcendent, very beautiful relationship, right? Uh, one marked by, by joy, right? Because ideally it should be. Um, you know, just on the most simple level, if you, if you have a lamp, but, but it's unplugged, right? Like it's not doing, it's kind of just taking up space on your night table at that point. But if you plug it in, the light shines. Right. So, again, I, you'll never find a simpler example than this, but the soul is that light. And when we connect our light, our soul shines. And when our soul shines, that's a manifestation of joy if we're doing it right. 
if we're doing it right. That that should unlock joy. Okay. So so what I'm trying to say is that there are a lot of people who are quote unquote religious, whatever that means. You know, by the way, you know, in the Torah, there's no word for religious. <laughs> I think that's I think that's important because religious is just kind of a made up English word to describe a certain a certain rhythm of life, right? But but there's no word for religious in the Torah. You're either kind of there or you're not there, right? So 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 nonetheless, there there are certain people who are ritually observant, let's say, and at a certain point they they get some of the commandments down, like for instance, keeping kosher. So it's sort of like at a certain point, okay, there are various rules and regulations and you kind of get it down. It's all right. Okay, I do it, whatever it is. And and there's sort of like a, a host of things in that category. And people's relationships with the divine sort of ends there. It's sort of like this very practical thing and everything like that. And again, going back to the story that I that I opened with, what I'm trying to tell you is that the real realm, the real headquarters of the ongoing relationship is really your emotions. Like, what are you doing with your emotions? And with that as an introduction, because a lot of people just like, my emotions are mine, right? But, but if you imagine yourself like saturated in, in godliness, Everything is in play, right? There's nothing that's quote-unquote yours, right? Everything is an aspect of the relationship, especially your emotions. So I want to just zero in on one key emotion, which is right at the epicenter of everything, with the epicenter of the entire Torah, okay? And it's, we just, we just read it, it's a very, very famous verse from the Torah. One of the most famous verses in the entire Torah. And Moshe, Moses is speaking. Um, remember, this is part of his farewell address to the Jewish people. He's recapitulating the entire Torah, all 40 years that, that they've gone through in terms of just being taken out of Egypt and, and all the rest, wandering in the desert. And now they're about to go into the land of Israel. And Moshe's giving the great recapitulation. Um, and that's the book of Devarim, Sefer Devarim, the last book of the Torah, also known in, I don't know if it's English, I think it's Latin or Greek or something, Deuteronomy, whatever that means. Okay, so so anyway, because Devarim means words, in Hebrew it makes sense. Um, but anyway, that aside. Um, and what does Moshe say? Moshe says, what does God want from you? And it's like, wow, okay, this is it. This is it. Moses Moses is going to tell us, like in one line, what God wants from us. Like, I'm sitting up straight, I'm paying attention, let me have it. And and he says, only that you should fear God. Now, let's get away from the English. You can translate that as awe, be in awe of God. We'll, we'll get to that later. And let's just focus on the English for now, because... That's, that's really, or rather, let's focus on the Hebrew for now, because that's really going to be our gateway to making a breakthrough in our lives, I think, I hope. Okay, 
So I'm just going to use the word yira from now on, okay? And that's what that's what Moshe says. God just wants yira from you. Okay. Now the the Talmud says, wait a second. Only yira? Yira is like a huge thing. How can how can Moshe say that God only wants yira when yira is so enormous? And then they answer. Well, for Moshe, it wasn't a big deal. Okay, and then the Gomorrah gives again such a simple, such a simple parable. Or, but but this is so much of human nature and the human condition is contained within this. Okay, if you really want to understand yourself and you want to understand other people, you 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 will not understand anything unless you master this parable. You ready? And it's so simple. They say. Well, for Moshe, for Moshe, Yira was, was not a big deal. And what can that be compared to? Okay, so here's the parable. Someone who has small pots, right? Like cooking pots, small pots, and wants to borrow a big pot. So they go to someone who has a big pot, and he says, oh yeah, I have a big pot here, I'm happy to lend it to you. And for the one who has the big pot, it's not a big deal. He has a big pot, so he's lending it to them because he has it. But to everyone else, wow, it's a, it's a big pot. I didn't have a big pot, now I have a big pot. Okay, that's the end of the, parable, the parable. And I'm telling you, so much of why you are the way you are and why other people are the way they are is actually contained within that little story. You see, there's something which is the way our brains are hardwired is that whenever we have something, we don't think it's anything. It's a very strange phenomena. You know, people who are gifted, like let's say you're great at music, okay? Like people who are great at music, they, they aren't aware of the... They, they don't really understand. They don't truly understand that other people are terrible at music. They can't hold a tune. They can't play an instrument. They couldn't write a song, you know, in a million years. And yet for someone who's musical, it's just second nature. Of course I, of course I come up with music and of course I can play an instrument. Come on, like, of course. So, so, so you should, you should understand just in terms of yourself, that you have gifts that you don't fully appreciate because for you, it's just a big pot. Other people are wondering, like, you've got a big pot? Can I borrow your big pot? And you're like, yeah, 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 go ahead. <laughs> you know? So for you, it's nothing. Okay, so now let's, uh, let's go deeper. Let's go deeper because... Um, Rav Frimer, and remember that's 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 the Eretzvi, and he was the uh, the Rosh Yeshiva of Hachmei Lublin, right? Which was the greatest yeshiva in the world. So you're we're tapping into you know, as 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 Rabbi Green would say, a brain the size of a planet right now, in terms of his analysis of the Gomorrah that we just learned together a moment ago. Okay, now remember. Moshe says to the people, 
what does God ask from you? Only that you should have fear. And the, and the Talmud comments, fear? Is that a small thing? Only? Okay, now look at the brilliance of Rav Frimmer. Again, so simple and straightforward, but a total revelation. He says, wait a second. That's the Gomorrah's question. That's the Talmud's question. And now I'm reading to you from, this is in uh, Devarim chapter um, 10, verse 12, if you want to look it up. Okay, I'm going to read you the whole verse. Because, because up until now, we've only been learning part of the verse. And you know, in Torah, that's a no-no. You got to learn the whole verse. Okay, so now listen to the whole verse. Now, O Israel, what does Hashem your God ask of you? Only to fear Hashem, okay, to have Yira. We'll, we'll get to the translation of what Yira is in a moment. But now we're going to continue. Your God, to go in all his ways and to love him and to serve Hashem, your God, with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Now, wait a second. <laughs> we thought you're only supposed to have Yira. And if you actually read the rest of the verse... What is Moshe saying? Moshe is saying, now what does God want from you? Only that you should do all 613 commandments and give the entirety of yourself to him. Right? That's what the verse says. So now we have a bunch of questions. Now, the first question is, um, oh, uh, you know, we learned together one time that if you hear a siren you should pray because <laughs> that means someone's in trouble and we can't hear their cry, but we're hearing the siren. So somehow we're all together and we're hearing a siren. I don't know where in the world that came from, but let's just take a moment to pray that whoever's in trouble, Hashem should send salvation. Amen. Yeah. And that's a, that's a good thing to do in your, in your life. Thank you. So, so we've got, We've got a big problem now. The problem is, the verse says that what is, Moshe is saying, what does God want from you? Only that you should do the entirety of the Torah with all of your heart and soul. That's all, that's all, that's all. And yet, the Gemara, the Talmud, understood that Pasuk to mean only that you should have Yerashamayim. Now, obviously, the sages of the Talmud read the entire um, verse, and yet that was their question. Does everyone hear? Now, how could that be their question? Because, um, by the way, just as an aside, no one can keep all 613 commandments. And the reason is because some commandments are for men, some are for women, some are for kings, some are for farmers, okay? So some commandments can only be kept after you've broken other commandments. Like there are several commandments of what to do after you've stolen when we're not supposed to steal. So there are commandments that you can only keep after you've broken commandments. Isn't that interesting? In fact, I like to say, you know, in, in AA, they, they famously have this, um, this phrase called falling off the wagon. So what does that mean? That means that if you, let's say someone is, you know, uh, abusing some substance, right? And then they muster the strength and they, they stop abusing, which is an amazing thing. 
and then they start abusing again. So that's called falling off the wagon. But in Torah, if you fall off the wagon, you always fall onto another wagon <laughs> because there's, there's the commandment to return, right? To fix it. Like you, you always, like, even if you fall, and we all fall, right? Even if you fall, you fall on the opportunity to repair the fall, right? And that, that's another expression of God's infinity and, and uh, omnipresence, how we dwell within God, right? Okay. So now, Rav Firmer gives a very, you know, amazing anal a a analysis, but I'm going to condense it right now. And you may have guessed what his, the answer to his question is. Why is the Talmud only focusing on the Yira part and not the rest of the verse, which includes everything else? And his answer is because what the Talmud understood was that Yira, if you possess Yira, you possess the ability to do the entirety of the Torah. And that that is, that is the key. Because remember, the verse starts by saying only that you should have Yira and then goes on to mention doing all other 612 of the mitzvot. But the Talmud is saying, if you have Yira, that's the gateway to keeping absolutely everything. Okay, so now that's a very big deal. This is a very, very big deal. Because we're being given a tremendous key right now, a tremendous secret, that the gateway to everything is Yira. And again, we're going we're gonna to give a better translation for Yira. And we're going to give it now. You ready? How do you know? Now, the, the, the Talmud says in another place, and Rav Firmer brings us, amazing, amazing, amazing that we get answers to this, okay? How do you know if you have Yira? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to know the test? <laughs> like, I want to know. I want to know if I have Yira. I mean, if Yira is the gateway to everything, I want to know. So the Talmud says, here's how to tell if you have Yira. If you have Busha. Okay, this is another Hebrew word, also difficult to translate. Also difficult to translate, but, but, um, I'll tell you the, the, the art scroll Talmud's uh, translation for Busha is bashfulness. Isn't that interesting? Bashfulness. Or I will hazard to give you one more English word. Remember, you always have to be careful when you translate these words because you can be putting your own limited understanding on the Hebrew. And we never want to do that. That's why it's, um, it's great to learn all the stuff in the original, or at least the key words in the original, right? So, so here, but here's another stab at, at a translation for the word busha. Because again, how do you know if you have yira? If you have busha. What's busha? Embarrassment. Embarrassment before God, right? So now listen to this. How great is it to have busha? Well, we just, we just heard that if you put Yira on one side, you've got the gateway to all, the entirety of the Torah. And then if you have Busha on the other side, 
you know that you're keeping Yira. So we found sort of like the fulcrum point. Like if you were to put your finger in, we found the balancing point for the entirety of the Torah. It's an amazing thing. And now just to sweeten the deal, the Talmud says, if you have busha, all of your sins are forgiven. Wow. So, so let's review, because we're saying enormous, we're saying enormous things right now. We're saying that the, the gateway to everything is Yira. How do you know if you have Yira? If you have Busha. And if you have Busha, everything is forgiven. Okay, so now I want to have Busha, right? And I also want to know, A, what Busha is, and B, why are all my sins forgiven? Okay, so let's try to answer all those questions. And again, just before I just tell you, what's so great about what we're learning right now is that it's, this is taking dense, huge, enormous, forest-like topics and, 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 and applying like a laser-level simplicity and clarity to things that might take years and years to learn otherwise, okay? So let's just appreciate how much is being boiled down right now. That's all. Okay. So what is busha? So let me let me kind of demonstrate busha for a moment, okay? This would be like busha. Oh, I'm so embarrassed, God. I I, I can't believe that I did that. I'm I'm really sorry. I I don't know why I did that. I'm really sorry. That that would be an example of busha. Busha, the greatness of busha is that it clarifies our relationship with God. It clarifies the fact that God is God. We're his children. We make mistakes. But we're aware of the balance of the relationship. And when God sees that, that a person understands in their heart, like for real, not, not pretending right now, not making things up, but when a person understands in their heart that, that the world belongs to God, that it's God's world, essentially, and, and that we have this enormous privilege to have like years and years of life in this world, to like partake of it and to enjoy it and to be astounded by it, right? And to learn like amazing things and to be with each other. But we want to respect that essential relationship. When we're mindful that that is the reality of the world, then God says, okay, you know all that other stuff that you did? You didn't really mean it because you know the bottom line, you know the truth. See, remember, let's go all the way back to the beginning. What happened in the Garden of Eden? How is it that we ate from the tree of knowledge? What did the snake say to us that we kind of got all discombobulated, right? Basically, the snake said, don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to be God too? You can also be God. And we were like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> we'll join the God club. Yeah, why not? And at that moment, we lost the clarity that God is God and we are who we are. We're just like emanations of the divine, which is beautiful and holy and fantastic. But 
That's the equilibrium. You know, I saw another expression of the of the soul and God that I that I really liked, which is imagine imagine an ocean. And now imagine waves coming up from the ocean. The wave coming up from the ocean is also part of the ocean. But it, at the same time it's its own individualized thing. So so the ocean, so to speak, is God, right? God is beyond that. You can't compare God to anything, but just so we can wrap our minds around an idea. And the wave coming up from the ocean, that's our soul. So you see that it's sort of like our soul is an aspect of the divine. It's, it's kind of individualized, but it's, it's made out of the divine, right? That's, that's another way to just try to begin to wrap your mind around it. So, so what happened was, when we ate from the tree of knowledge, we got that essential relationship completely wrong. We were like, oh, no, 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 we're also God. We too are God. It's like, God's like, mm. <laughs> not exactly, not exactly. So, so, so that's the greatness of Busha. And I'll tell you a big Busha moment that I had in my life, okay? Uh, when I first got married, I was in New York, and uh, we were staying with uh, some friends of my wife, this, this young couple who had like this great place on West End Avenue, uh, on the Upper West Side. And they were very, very generous, and, and they... They gave us a key to the apartment and they told us to come and go as we like. And that Shabbos, they, you know, can I know her? They've been blessed with means. They had a long Shabbos table. They invited a lot of guests and there were, you know, the table was set with like crystal and silver and like all sorts of things like that. And the host was sitting at the head of the table, you know, but, but he was a very quiet guy and he, he almost said nothing the whole meal. And I was in like a great mood. So I was like telling stories and giving over teachings and telling jokes and things like that. And people were laughing and they were appreciating. And I was loving that they were loving and everything like this. And at the end of the meal, I walked them to the door and I thanked them for coming. <laughs> and then I realized, oh my, oh, I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed. Because here I was, a guest in this person's house, and I was acting like I was the host. And then I thought to myself, wow, all of us are guests in this world. And how often are we acting like we're the host? You see, that's, that's Busha. That's Busha. That's Busha. It's understanding that essential relationship that we're in. Now, I'm going to give you another version of this, okay? I'm going to give you another version, and I'm going to give you another word for it in a moment. Just to kind of, just so that we can kind of really kind of grasp this concept, because these concepts are absolutely at the core of Torah spirituality, okay? So the Parsha opens up. That says, um, it's Parshas Ekev, and, and, and that means the heel of your body. And there's all sorts of Torah about the heel of your body. It's, they're amazing teachings. Maybe I'll tell you a couple, okay? Here are a few. Your heel 
is the least physically sensitive part of your body. All right? Which, which is a divine chesed. Can you imagine if God put your eyeballs on the bottom of your feet? <laughs> like, imagine if your eyeball was where your heel is. You would, every time you took a step, you'd be like, ah, 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 right? Or if, if your heel was as sensitive as your tongue, you'd be like, but, but God divinely, divinely constructed us in a way that our heel, which bears so much of a brunt um, of our just being creatures in this world, is the least sensitive part of us. Now, if you imagine a human being like a timeline, the heel represents the end of your body. And so, Kabbalistically speaking, your heel represents the end of days. Right? So much so that in Torah holy books, the end of days is referred to as ikfei demeshiche, right? That's Aramaic. And that means the heel, the heel at the end of days, basically, meaning the messianic period. Now listen to this. One of the coolest things I ever learned in my life, and you can you, you can you can demonstrate this now <laughs> or try to remember it because if you actually do it, you'll you'll be like, wow, it's like what he said. It's like it's really true. Stand by the door of your room. Okay, like open up your door and stand inside your room, but just at the door to your room. As you step out of your room, you'll see the last part of your body to leave the room is your heel. I've done this many times. It's actually true. The last part of your body to leave the room is the heel of your foot. And so that's, that is just a kind of a very amazing validation of this idea that the heel stands for the end of days. Okay. And Rabbi Wolfson gives a very interesting thing. He says, you know something, if you think of, again, the human body as, a, as like a timeline to the redemption, and the heel represents the end of days, that means that the heel also represents the last generation before Mashiach, right? Before the redemption. And that it's, it's not by coincidence that our generation today, if you look around, people are so spiritually insensitive because we are the heel of the generations. Isn't that interesting? If you think of earlier times, the level of knowledge and spirituality was so much greater and, and than it is today. So we're like the heel, but the heel supports the entire structure. In other words, all the previous generations are looking to us to come through because we need to finish off their work. You understand? So on the, on the one hand, we're like the lowest. And on the other hand, we're the greatest. So it's a, a very, very amazing dynamic that's in place right now in terms of these, these generations. Um. Okay, so with all of that as an introduction about the heel, let's, let's see what the verse says. Um, it says that,
Well, boy, this is working on so many different levels simultaneously. Um, but but if you if you listen if you listen to those ordinances that you normally would tread on, right? Like the little things. Like a lot of times, I like to say in life, um, little kindnesses and things like that, like little acts of thoughtfulness, that the little things are the big things. Because a lot of times you do just something very little for someone, but in that little act is a reflection of how much you really think and care about them. So a lot of times that's the same way with, with our, our avoda, our, our divine relationship, that a lot of times like the little things, the little sensitivities that we do really show that we're thinking about God and that God is in our heart. So, so this word akev, that everything is sort of like standing on, on the heel. So the Noam Elimelech, one of the greatest Hasidic masters, says the whole Torah is standing on your heel. And do you know what your heel is? Humility. In other words, if you have this attribute of humility, then you have the foundation to support the entire structure of the type of person that, that, that we're striving to be. So again, it's another way of understanding what we've been talking about up until now. We said that the whole Torah basically can be accessed through Yira. And how do you know if you have Yira? If you have Busha. If you have this sort of like holy embarrassment, right? Which sort of like creates that, 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 that reality check of our relationship with God. And, and how do you get, what is the partner of having that attribute of Busha? If a person is humble. Okay, so now let's talk about what it means to be humble a little bit. Because the way the Torah understands being humble is very different from the way the secular world talks about humility. The way the secular world talks about it is often it means to, um, to not live in reality. I'll tell you what I mean in a moment. Like, for instance, let's say you've got like the greatest basketball player. You've got Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant, whoever it is, right? Um, and, and you say, you go up to him after he hits one of these buzzer beaters, right? Wins just another championship in the last second, you know, under like impossible pressure, somehow gets the ball in and wins the whole championship. And you go up to him and you say, hey, wow, that you are the greatest. And he goes, oh, uh, nah, I didn't do anything at all. So... It's a, it's a start. It, it sounds like humility, but let's say he was really sincere in, do, in saying that. There's a denial of greatness there. And denial of greatness is not what the Torah understands humility to be. Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe, Moses, is called the most humble person that ever lived. Do you think that Moses didn't understand that he was the one on top of the mountain and the millions of people who were down below were down below? In other words, do you think he didn't understand that he was the guy on top of the mountain? <laughs> I assure you, 
he understood that he was the guy on top of the mountain. And yet, he's called the most humble person ever. Okay, so we're just, we're at the beginning of the topic here, but let me just, let me just give you my favorite example, okay? Rebbe, who is the one who put the entire Mishnah together. Remember, the Mishnah is at the core of the entire Talmud. What the Talmud is, is it's the Gomorrah explaining the Mishnah. And then together, the Gomorrah and the, Mish- and the Mishnah are, are called the Talmud, okay? So Rebbe, in his greatness, first of all, understands that he has to write down the oral law, which was never supposed to be written down, but he sees that it's being forgotten. And he says, you know, there's a time to break the Torah in order to keep the Torah, right? It just Rebbe was, in Rebbe means our teacher, basically. So, so, so that in itself is a sign of how great he was among the sages that they didn't even give him a name. He was just known as the teacher. Okay. Rebbe was also one of these most humble people ever. And when Rebbe died, the, many of the sages were sitting around a table and they were like, hey, what are we going to do? Now that Rebbe is gone, humility has left the world. And there was a silence. And then Rav Yosef was sitting there and he said, I'm still here. And the other sages went, oh, yeah, yeah, Rav Yosef's still here. Okay, good. Humility hasn't left the world. (laughs) I love that story because here's how you think it should go. Here's how everyone, everyone thinks it should go this way. They go, I, Rebbe's left the world. Humility's gone. There's like this holy silence. And then Rabbi Yosef says, I'm still here. You expect everyone to pick up the closest object and hurl it at Rabbi Yosef. Like, who are you? Chutzpah. Who are you to say that you're humble? And yet you see that they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's humble, he's humble, he's humble. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It hasn't left the world. So from this, you see something very huge, which is according to the Torah, if you have an attribute, if you're a great singer, if you're a great writer, if you're like a great business person, if you're like just a nice person, whatever it is, appreciate and own the reality of your talent, right? Don't be like someone who has a big pot and has no consciousness that they're in possession of a big pot. A person has to acknowledge the fact that they have the gifts that they have. Now, I'll tell you something the Rishina Rebbe says, and this is... um, part of his advice of how a person can actually achieve greatness. You ready for this? He says that when a person starts out in terms of their journey, right, their spiritual journey, their life, their their relationship with God, what they have to do at the outset is to convince themselves of their own greatness. Now, again, this sounds sort of counterintuitive, right? Is that is that humility? Is that busha? Is that you know like what's what's going on here? No, a person well a person should always have busha, but a person should 
convince themselves of their own greatness. And then once they understand that they're great, you ready for this? Here comes the twist. Once they understand that they're great, they'll look around and they'll behold true greatness. (laughs) And when they see true greatness, they'll realize that they haven't even started yet. And then they'll rededicate themselves and they'll actually be on the path toward true greatness. See, let me make the point even stronger. What a lot of people confuse with humility, I'm being very humble right now. I'm being so humble. I'm so humble. But you know what that is? Brother, sister, you just have low (laughs) self-esteem. That's not humility. You have low self-esteem. In order to be nothing, first you have to be something. If you just think that you're a nothing, that's not humility. That's low self-esteem. If you actually want to be humble, first you have to understand that you're something. And then once you're convinced that you're something, then become nothing. (laughs) Because then you're nothing and something at the same time. And that's, that's where we're trying to get at. That's humility. I'll give you another one of my favorite stories on this subject. It's another story like the first one that I, I told you about the, 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 the non-Hasidic guy who shows up in the Hasidic place. So Kotsk, you know, was, was mysterious and fascinating before the Jewish world because they were like, what's going on in Kotsk? And they, they were like folk songs, a fire burns in Kutsk. Like people were like amazed at like the, the spirituality that was going on in Kutsk, right? And everybody knows that Kutsk was all about this burning, burning desire for the truth. Everything was just truth. We want truth. So, so because there was such an fervent desire for there to be truth, there was no flattery. No one flattered each other, right? It was, it, in fact, when Reb Leibla Eger shows up, remember his grandfather is Rabbi Akiva Eger, who was like the Vilna Gon. He was like one of the, the, the greatest rabbis in the world to this day. And this was the grandson, and his father was a, a, a tremendous Torah scholar. And they had wealth, and he was like this prince, and, but from a very non-Hasidic family. In fact, it was put in his marriage ketubah, that the, that the shidduch is off, the marriage arrangement is off if either of them is ever found in a Hasidic shtibel. That's, that's how, how adamant they were. Of course, the grandson, Rebbe Label Eger, who we're talking about, becomes a Hasidic Rebbe. <laughs> okay, so but that's, that's an amazing story in itself. But anyway, he's like this genius, this son of a genius, the grandson of a genius, wealthy. And what does he want? All he wants is the truth. And he shows up at Kutsk, and he shows up in like this fur coat, right? Which was, you know, like a symbol of like, you know, kind of driving up in your, in your, in your Ferrari or whatever it is. And the first thing they did was they tied him to a table and they stripped him of his coat. And they were like, not around here. Not around here. You, you don't do that here because that means nothing to us. I'll tell you another story, just 
because it's another one of my absolute favorite stories while we're on the subject. A little whiles into Rebelebele Eger being in Kutsk, he, it was Yom Kippur, right? The holiest day of the year. Of course, a fast day. You don't eat or drink on Yom Kippur. And after the davening, after the prayers, he goes to the to the base medrash, the study hall, and he's he's learning, right? And he hears two two Hasidim who who were Katzker Hasidim, right? Two followers who were there. And one says to the other, Ah, oh, I can't believe it. It's Yom Kippur, holiest day of the year, and we didn't make Kiddush. Right? That means drinking wine, saying the prayer over the wine. And the other goes, Oh, you know you're right. We, we forgot to make Kiddush. And Reb Leibla Eger is like sitting there, like he's hearing this, and he's like, what are they talking about? You don't make Kiddush on, on Yom Kippur? You don't drink anything? You don't eat anything? What, what are they doing? Right? And it's not a, a slight offense. Like, for this, one soul gets cut off from heaven. It's, this is a very major, major offense. And he sees they go to the to the cabinet and they take out a kiddush cup and they take out a b- bottle of wine and they start to pour the wine and and he turns around and he goes no and they say what are you getting so upset about he says you can't make kiddush it's yom kippur and they said who says he says god says they say who's god And he goes silent. And then they lean in and you realize the whole thing was just a setup. They lean in, they say, Labla, you've been in Kutsk for months and you don't know who God is? That's as strong as it gets, folks. <laughs> you cannot get stronger than that. <laughs> That's as strong as it gets. So, so yeah. You know, the Kutzka Rebbe says that you have to have kavana, you have to have something holy in mind, you have to direct your soul to the mitzvah before you perform a, a mitzvah. You have to have kavana, it's called kavana, you have to have kavana before you do a mitzvah. Just to say, what I'm about to do is for you, God, right? He says, you know what mitzvah you don't, you don't have kavana for before you do it? Being humble. You don't say, God, I'm about to do the great act of being humble for you. Because <laughs> that in itself is an act of arrogance, right? Look how humble I am, God. I'm about to be humble for you, right? You just know. You just know what the essential relationship is between us and God. You love God, but at the same time, you understand that God is God. So, so here's the story. This non-chassid, this outsider from this commu- of the Kutzker community, it's like, I got to find out what's going down in Kutsk, right? I'm hearing all these stories about what, what happens in Kutsk. I got to see for myself. 
So, so he goes to the base medrash, and he himself was a Torah scholar. And you know, you're supposed to stand before a Torah scholar. And he notices when he walks into the room, no one's standing for him. And you know, he's a little bit insulted. It's like the derech heretz. It's just common courtesy. This is how we're supposed to act in a Torah way. We're supposed to honor someone who has the attribute of learning. And by the way, you're not really even standing for the person. You're really just standing for the Torah. He's just a representative of it. So you're not even standing for him. You're standing for the Torah. No one's standing for him. And he's there for a little while. He's, you know, compiling notes. He's going to make a report for the world. What goes on in Kutsk? And at a certain point, he notices that in Kutsk, they only stand for two people. One is for the Rebbe, right? The Kutsk Rebbe. That makes sense. The other is for someone who knows absolutely nothing. He's a worker, and he's so poor that he has two bags, two little burlap sacks for shoes, and he doesn't even have money for a yarmulke. He has a leaf over his head for a yarmulke. So, and he knows nothing. He knows no Torah. And, they, and all the Kutzker Hasidim, they stand for him also. Those are the only two people. So at a certain point, he, he asks someone, he says, you know, I understand that you stand for the Kutzker Rebbe, but this guy, why do you stand for him? Now, you ready for this answer? Unbelievable answer. And they say, because he actually is nothing and he's not arrogant about it. <laughs> you understand what that means? See, a lot of people they kind of get up to a certain point, but they don't make the next step. Or they get up to a certain point, and then they blow it. You see, in Torah, a lot of people don't know this idea. You have the test, but then you have the test after the test. Most people don't know about the test after the test. So here's a good example of it. This person achieved humility. He, he reached this place of bittel, you know, this, this place of self-nullification where he realizes all there exists basically is God and that he's nothing. In, but, but again, nothing in the sense that first he understood that he's something before he became nothing. Not low self-esteem, right? The best version of it. He reached this holy status of nothingness, right? Or just being one with God, if you will. And then he didn't become arrogant about it. <laughs> See, that's the amazing irony, that someone can reach the heights of humility and then become arrogant about how humble they are. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. It shows you that that as long as we're in this world, as long as we breathe, there's opportunities for further growth. And we've never arrived. Right? The greatest test of 
You see, if you think that you've arrived, that's the greatest proof that you haven't arrived. Because if you think that you've arrived, you failed the test after the test. You may have gone far, but if you decided, now I'm something, right? This is, this is Adam and Chava eating from the fruit. I want to join the God Club too, right? And we've lost that essential busha, which is, oh God, I'm so sorry. There's you and there's me, right? And on the deepest level, right, we're a wave off the ocean, we're a ray of light off the sun, we're, we've got that holiness, we've got that goodness, God loves us to pieces, right? But at the same time, we're guests in the house, and it's God's house. And a person has to learn how to balance all of these ideas. And, and, and that's a life's work, right? Like, Torah spirituality, it's a, it's, it's a tightrope walk where you have to balance opposites often, often, right? The idea that the whole world was created for me and that I'm nothing. You know, I think a lot of you are familiar with this idea, and I think it comes from Kutsk, by the way, that a person has to put a little slip of paper in each of their pockets. In one, it says, the entire world was created just for me. That goes in one pocket. That's a Torah thought also. And in the other pocket, and I'm dust and ashes. That goes in the other pocket. And a, a lot of people don't know the second part of that teaching. <laughs> That's all they quote. But it's the second part of that teaching where you make your cash, so to speak. The second part of that teaching is, now that you have it in each pocket, you have to know when to pull out which slip of paper. <laughs> you see, I can have in my pocket, the whole world was created for me in one pocket, and I'm dust and ashes in the other pocket, and then you insult me. And then you know what piece of paper I pull out? The whole world was created for me. Who are you to insult me? Do you understand? I had them both. And then I got tested. And I pull out exactly the wrong slip of paper. And this goes back to what I was saying at the very beginning. That really the, the, the realm, you know, we've got to get the, the basic do's and don'ts down. That's very important, right? But, but not to forget about the fact that often the main battleground of our lives is, is our emotions, right? How do, you, how do we feel when we're insulted? Right? Do we, does it arouse hatred within us? Right? Arrogance. Or do we go, you know, I'm dust and ashes. That's, this is, these are the, these are the little things, these are the little moments, but all these little moments accumulate an entire, into an entire lifetime, right? And that's who we become in the end. You know, I, I, I said over this thought at my father's uh, funeral, I, I tell you that because I want you to know how precious this, this thought is to me. And I heard it from Rabbi Green originally. He said, 
who are you? Right? Who are you? So you're not your body because after 120, you leave your body behind. And you're not your soul because your soul is a piece of God. Well, that's very challenging right now, right? If I'm not my body and I'm not my soul, then, then who am I? You know, what stands before the heavenly court? And he says, you are the decisions that you make. You are a culmination of the decisions that you make over the course of your lifetime. That, that's who we are. That's who we are. So these little moments, when I say that, that our emotions are like the battleground, so to speak, that's, these are like the little moments, the little decisions. How am I going to react to this situation and that situation? Okay. So we'll just, we'll just wrap it up. I want to tell you one story, just one last story. Um, this was like a, a happy minion moment. You know, I, I, I'm privileged to daven at the, the happy minion of Los Angeles. If you haven't checked it out. We're a little homeless these days. We're meeting in someone's backyard right now, but we endure, we endure. Uh, but this was like a real happy minion moment. So I'm, I'm sharing it with you. Uh, there was someone who just showed up in this backyard in this neighborhood. He's never been to the happy minion before. He walked in, but he was wheeling in his own wheelchair and he was an elderly chassid, had a white beard, long black coat, a black hat. Um, he was with his wife, who was very sneezely dressed with a shetel, and, you know, really, you know, like a real legit elderly Hasidic couple showing up at our, at our service there. And when he sat down uh, in a chair, they sat him down, he was too weak to stand on his own. And, you know, he had reached an age where even for like the major prayers that you would stand for, he, he, he remained sitting because he, he simply didn't have the strength. So it's, a, it's an amazing thing, by the way, that he, that, that he was, had the ability even to, to attend the service, you know? Anyway, the time came for us to read the Torah. And uh, Ben Sion, our, our Gabbai, wanted to give him an aliyah, call him up to the Torah. And he calls him up, but the problem is, is that he, he tried to stand and he couldn't stand, much less walk over to where the Torah scroll was, where the bima was, you know, which was only, by the way, three feet away, four feet away. It was close by, but he didn't have the strength to do that. And then here's the point of the story. Another person in the minion gets an idea, and he wheels over the entire bima with the Torah scroll on top of it to be directly in front of him. And now using the bima as leverage, he's able to stand and hold on to it and stand during the blessing during the entire reading of that aliyah, to stand there even for the next aliyah, and then to sit down, and then we wheeled it back, or they wheeled it back to, to where it was originally. And it was like, wow, wow. 
and you were in a gathering of people, but it only occurred to one person. And it was like a revelation that this was even like a possibility. It was so awesome. We wheeled the entire thing to him. I shouldn't say we, because I, I didn't have the idea. I didn't have the, the merit of pushing it, unfortunately. But, but I witnessed it. That, that in itself was a merit, just to have been able to witness that. It was so beautiful. So, so let's just recap. Yira is the gateway to everything. And how do you know if you have Yira if you have Busha? And what's Busha? Busha is that great quality that if you have it, all of your sins are forgiven. Busha is that holy embarrassment that great humility that everything stands on, where you understand that we're, we're emanations of godliness, right? But at the same time, God is God and we are we. And we're united. But if we understand that essential relationship, then everything harmonizes and we get into that place of divine equilibrium from which all blessings flow. And um, with your permission, I want to tell you one more thing. <laughs> but it's good. It's good. It's a good one. It's worth, it's worth holding on for. It's a good one. Okay. So, so in the Parsha, Hashem says that that God is gonna that there's gonna be a period in in history and you know we're we're largely experiencing it right now. You know one of the ironies is that uh, people think of Jews in general, non-Jews. The non-Jewish world thinks of Jews as just you know crazy rich people. You know who are you know they're all rich. And and the joke is is that anyone who like takes two minutes to learn some Jewish history knows that we've been in dire poverty for most of most of the thousands of years that we've been around. And that unfortunately has been the result of anti-Semitism that's 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 just sort of locked Jews off from the rest of the community and made it illegal for them to have jobs. Right? So so that's that's what we've that is the great bulk of our of our of our history. Terrible poverty, unfortunately. Anyway, now we're living in a time where relative to our history, it's astounding wealth. And Moshe says, Moshe says, as a prophecy in the Torah, he says, there are going to be times where God is going to absolutely bless you with everything. And it's going to be a test to see, are you going to say, I got all of this from my own power? Or are we going to say, that you know something, it's all been a gift from God. So another in, in, in order to have the to make a vessel out of yourself to receive this giant wealth, right? A person has to have the foundation of humility. Otherwise they'll never withstand the um, temptation to accredit it to their own greatness. Okay? Anyway, with that in mind, I want to compare it to um an American, a Native American 
um, ceremony called potlatch, which you may or may not be familiar with. It's an absolutely fascinating ceremony um, that took place among the tribes of the Northwest. And, and it goes like this. And the way it was explained to me in school originally, that it was a substitute for war among tribes. But I, I did a, just a tiny, tiny bit of research, and I see that it's also on happy occasions and things like that. But I'm especially intrigued by this idea that it was in, in, as a substitute for war. But nonetheless, I just want to tell you that it was done on other, it's done on other occasions as well. But it's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing ritual. And it goes like this. You've got two tribes facing off at each other, okay? And the, the leaders of the tribes, let's say the chief of the tribe, right? One presents the other with a wonderful, valuable gift. And they're standing by like a cliff, okay? And he receives the gift and it's like, wow, this is so nice. <laughs> I love this. This is great. But am I going to keep it or am I going to show that I'm above materiality? And so as an aspect of his triumphing over it, he takes that gift and he throws it off the cliff. <laughs> and then he presents a very valuable present to the other leader. And that leader, oh my God, this is so great. But if he accepts the gift and keeps the gift, he loses. In other words, he can be, so to speak, in my own language, he can be bought. And he goes, I love it, but I can't be bought, you know? And he throws it off the cliff. And they give each other progressively more valuable gifts, which the first person to say, ah, this I got to keep, like loses. Now, from I'm just giving you my own analysis of this, okay? From my understanding of this, there's a very great spirituality at work here among the Native Americans, which is... Are you going to are you going to say that there's something more valuable than spirituality? Because once you do, you so to speak lose. Once you buy into and you've been sort of like bought right by this beautiful object, whatever it is, at that point the other tribe has demonstrated its greatness over you, right? And then and then that's the end. Now, the reason why I'm bringing that up is because I want to contrast it to Torah spirituality for a moment. Which is that, do you want to know how cool God is? God says, you know what, I'm giving you all this stuff and you can keep it. <laughs> but, just know it came from me and not from you. <laughs> you got to do work. You got to do your best. You know, you don't, don't think it's just free gifts. We, we believe in work. You got to work. Work your hardest. But keep in mind it's from me. And if you keep in mind it's from me, you keep all of it. Okay. We should be blessed with beautiful things and happiness and, and just that divinely balanced relationship where we have it all and we get it right. What follows now are some questions and so answers. So I would say one tool 
um, to to be able to use. And it's a it's it's a simple tool, and by simple I mean clear, but it's not. It, it is hard to do often. Okay, but this is one of the ways to sort of actualize everything that I'm talking about, or that the Torah is teaching us here, is the ability to say, I'm wrong. The ability to say, I don't know. The ability to say, I made a mistake. These are all... These are all expressions, practical expressions of busha and and of of holy embarrassment. Because the real kind of um, test of a person is how do I react when I become face to face with my own limitations? I'll say it again. The real test of a person is how do I react when I become face-to-face with my own limitations? And you're going to get a lot of different responses to this. Anger will be one. Taking drugs will be another because I've now confronted my limitation and I must escape myself because I cannot inhabit my own being that is limited. Therefore, I must run and escape. So people will become drug addicts or abuse any of a variety of things, right? Another thing is a person might become depressed. But how can you become depressed when you've been given this gift of life and God is good and God loves you? Why? But but no, it's all about me. I've, I'm I'm limited. Now I have to mourn my my own failability and become depressed. Isn't that the, you know, I didn't win the beauty contest. Isn't depression the only option? Right. So. So 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 that's another reaction. You know, um, denial. Um, oh. I'm not limited. You're limited. <laughs> that's 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 another another reaction that's very common. So so remember remember the story about the other person in Kotsk who they stood up for. He was nothing and he didn't get arrogant about it. <laughs> amazing that's that is amazing that that is an amazing story like I'm limited and I acknowledge my limitation you know why because God is God and I'm one of his creatures right so maybe I just had a hit the ceiling moment and maybe if I work with that I'll be able to you know raise the height of the ceiling a little bit more but I'm limited. That's it's who I am. God's God. I'm me. But I'm so happy to be alive and, you know, an emanation of his godliness. And then you stay balanced within the 
clarity of the distinction of the relationship. I'm a guest. It's God's house. I am so happy to be in his house. Yeah. So here's the thing. And I'm going to say this, just listen very carefully, okay? Man, and by man, of course, we mean man and woman, mankind. Man has godliness within him, but man is not God. Man has godliness within him, but man is not God. Okay? And, and that's, when you, when you hear it, that's the bottom line that I'm telling you right now. When you hear that, it should be clear that, that there is a godly aspect to human beings, but human beings are not God. Now, I want to tell you two other things just to round out that idea, okay? One is there's a medrash, which is that the angels, when the angels saw Adam Harishon, the angels got confused, is this God? So you should, you should know that this, this, this question was confusing even to the angels. And, and by the way, what does it mean that, that man was created in God's image? It means that God has free choice and mankind has free choice. In other words, it has nothing to do with physicality. So that's another thing that other people get tripped up about. They, they think, well, in the image, that's, well, that, that means something physical. It's, it's nothing physical. It's this incredibly exalted attribute of free choice. And we are the only other creature in the universe besides God that has free choice. Angels don't have free choice because angels, you see, God is hidden in this world. One of the reasons why God is hidden in this world, or perhaps the reason why God is hidden in this world, and God's not just hidden in this world, by the way. God is the most hidden he can possibly be, where if you look for him, you can still find him. <laughs> okay, that's, that's as hidden as it gets. God, in his, God is as hidden as he can be, where if you still look for him, you can find him, okay? So why is that? Why does God hide himself? In order to give us free choice. And that's in contrast to the angels who see a quantumly higher revelation of godliness in the world, and they see God, or, an, or much more of God. They don't see all of God. Only God sees all of God, okay? So even the angels say, where is the place of his glory? So they see radically more of God than we do, but they don't see all of God. But they see enough of God to say, whoa, there's God. And whatever God wants, that's what we're doing, because there's God, and that's what he wants. And it's ultra clear to them. Ultra clear to the point where their free choice is immobilized. They don't have free choice. So we are the only creature in the universe other than God that has free choice. And that's what it means that were created in the image of God. Okay? Very important to know that. Okay. Now I'm going to tell you something else, which is the rest of that medrash, an amazing, amazing medrash, where the angels are like confused. They're like scratching their heads, so to speak. Like, like is that God? Like, who is that? So now the medrash is going to tell us about the invention of sleep. What? Sleep? Yes, the invention of sleep. That God then created sleep so that man and woman, 
right? Human beings have to sleep. And then once we went to sleep, the angels were like, oh, that's not God. (laughs) So believe it or not, sleep was this, is a sign of our humanity and lack of just that we're not God. That's how sleep enters into the world. And then the angels got it clear. Okay, so that's, that is, hopefully, hopefully that will be helpful. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast, where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.